You're listening to the On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast production of The Digital 007, a look back at James Bond in video games. Disc one, the 80s. Hello and welcome to the Digital 007. A look back at James Bond in video games, of course, brought to you by On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast and our fine Patreon sponsors. I'm Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, aka Death Probe, and I will be taking you through this journey through the decades to look at all the various incarnations of James Bond in video games. Let me tell you how this is generally going to work. I will give you some basic information on each game, and we're more interested in hearing from people who have played the games along the way. So wherever possible, I was out there hitting those internets, finding our listeners, our friends, people who rally around the show, over at Twitter, at OHMSPod, and I'm catching these folks, and I'm talking to them about their James Bond video game experiences. So there's going to be a lot of that thrown in here. We're really just going to be looking at the fun facts, going through the timeline, and getting those interesting experiences from our very listeners. This has been an absolute blast to put together, so let me not waste any more time and get straight to our first game. Our first up is 1982. It all begins in 1982 with a guy named Richard Shepard. He founded Richard Shepard Software out of England and made the very first James Bond video game known to man. It was called Shaken But Not Stirred. This was one of those early text-based adventures. We will talk more about text-based adventures because we've got some interesting insights coming up on a couple more because this would not be James Bond's last foray into the realm of text-based adventures. But in 1982, Richard Shepard created Shaken But Not Stirred. It was available on the ZX Spectrum. It was definitely what you would call interactive fiction, which basically means you read a story on the screen as if you were reading a novel. And then at certain places in the story, you would get a chance to type in input words like go north, look left, open the box, things of that nature. And when you got the phrases correct, it would allow you to proceed further into the story. This was a very popular genre in the 1980s. And again, we will return to this genre. What makes Shaken But Not Stirred somewhat interesting is that it was never actually an officially licensed game. You have to keep in mind this was the early days of video games and licensing and legalities was still sort of in that gray area. So Richard Shepard took it upon himself to make a text-based James Bond adventure. Now, as you can imagine, I had a very hard time finding anyone who's actually played this game. It wasn't released in mass quantities because, again, it wasn't licensed. So the game itself is pretty rare. And I never did find anyone in all my searches who's actually played the game. But here's what I can tell you about it. The plot involves James Bond stopping the villainous Dr. Death from using nuclear weapons on London itself. 
There are some graphics included in the game, like a lot of text-based adventures would throw in pictures or small animations from time to time, but for the most part, just text-based, decision-making, very simple, so there you go, James Bond fans, your first James Bond video game, Shaken But Not Stirred, 1982, Richard Shepard Software for the ZX Spectrum. This game is so rare that I have gone to look for it on eBay. No one is currently selling it. No one's been selling it over the last several months. It hasn't even been sold on eBay in any kind of recent history. So this is a rare game, hard to come by. Again, it was mainly available in England. So good luck, collectors out there trying to find 1982's Shaken But Not Stirred. Let's move on to our next game. Welcome to 1983. 1983 was a good year to be a 007 fan because it was a double dose of Bond at the box office. Octopussy and Never Say Never Again battled it out on the big screen and video games were becoming so mainstream that James Bond himself did some gaming against Max Largo in Never Say Never Again, which even went so far as to include an arcade scene in lieu of the usual casino scene. But meanwhile, the Atari home video game systems had really taken off. The video game industry was in full boom, and over at Parker Brothers, a guy named Joe Goucher was working on a little something. Parker Brothers brings the hottest video games home. It's James Bond, a deadly game of four land and sea battles based on the thrilling Bond movie classics. Survive, and you become the master spy, 007. And Gyrus, hot from the arcade. Nothing moves like Gyrus. It's galactic warfare as you're attacked by enemy ships, meteors, and satellites in a relentless search for Earth. Gyrus and James Bond 007 for these video and home computer systems. So James Bond finally got a licensed game. It was simply called James Bond 007, and it was created by Joe Goucher. This is back in the days when individuals would create games instead of large studios. It was available on the Atari 2600, Atari 5200, ColecoVision, Commodore 64, Atari computers, and the SG-1000. Is a side-scrolling vehicle-based game. You get to drive a James Bond-like submarine car thing throughout the whole adventure. It uses elements from Diamonds Are Forever, Moonraker, and The Spy Who Loved Me. And it also had additional elements from For Your Eyes Only on some of the systems. Depending on which system you had, it would either have the three levels or the four levels, really just limited by the memory space of whatever system you were playing it on. Interesting side note, there was print material available. You can go and find it online where Parker Brothers was advertising for an Octopussy game on Atari, but it was never released. The ads were out there, but the game just never came out. But enough from me. Let's hear from somebody who's actually played it. Let's talk to Phil, the no-swear gamer from YouTube. The game James Bond 007 on a 2600, very rare game. It's not a game I ever saw during my childhood. But I, I'm doing my show on YouTube. I'm doing the notes for Gamer. And one day I found a lot of games on eBay, Atari games, that include some rare titles. And mixed in was James Bond. And that was a game I was aware that existed by this point, but I never got to try. So 
I was excited to try it, but if you just look at the box, you you know, it's just like a silhouetted James Bond, nothing too exciting. The cartridge just says James Bond 007, not, nothing exciting. And typically Atari games have wonderful artwork. And this one, not so much. We had Octopussy. And if you looked at the ad for the original one, you know, you had this James Bond, it looked like a poster. It, it was very poster-like for the James Bond movies. And the box art was nothing like that. I'm guessing that if they would have released the Octopussy game, the box art would have been similar to what you saw in the ads and it would have looked more like a poster. That's just a guess. Parker Brothers, who made the game, they weren't really big on huge box art, but usually more than that. I pop it in. I'm excited to give it a try. And it plays like Moon Patrol. Moon Patrol is this old arcade game where you're this little moon buggy and you're, the screen's going you know, from right to left. You're constantly scrolling and, and you have to avoid enemies and shoot them. And this game's the same way. So you're driving the James Bond car, which this is like an all-in-one car. It's supposed to be like the Lotus, but it's one of these cars where you're able to jump really high, but you can't fly. And you're able to go underwater for a few seconds, but you can't swim, if that makes sense. You can't do this stuff. It's such an interesting kind of mechanic because in the movies, James Bond, he gets in a car. He's a race car driver. He's a stunt driver. He can just go in and out, hairpin turns. In this game, it's like you're moving through sludge. It is just very, very difficult to move around. Your mobility is really hampered. Every time you go underwater, the buoyancy brings you right back up. And that is just killing this game because you are given all these enemies. Almost none of them can you destroy and you're having to avoid everything. It's like take Bond and put him in a clunker of a car and give him like a water gun and tell him to survive now. And that's basically what you have to do with this game. It's, it was such a frustrating experience. And what really kind of burns me is originally the game was supposed to be based on Octopussy and it had James Bond going through a train and it sounded exciting. And then they put you in a car where you're driving on sludge and it just took the James Bond mystique and it just kind of flushed it down the toilet. It is playable, but it is so difficult. I can't find anyone who's beaten the game. I'm sure there's people who have beaten the game out there, but I have not. And I've played a few games in my time and I couldn't get through the game's supposed to be three movies in one on other systems. It's four movies in one. And I couldn't get through the second movie. I couldn't get through Moonraker. And just a side note, come on Moonraker's right there. It is basically Star Wars meets James Bond. Why can't I play James Bond flying through space, shooting people, hopping in a shuttle, shooting these poison balloon canister things? That's exciting. Instead, I have to be through this sludgy car. But the music in the game, theme song in the 2600 game, very good for the system. Very well done. Phil the No Swear Gamer goes on to talk about the rarity of the game. And it came out at a terrible time because there was this big video game crash when we were kids. Games were going for like a dime a box. And that's why a lot of people don't know about this game because it came out during that time. That's why it's a relatively rare game, an unknown game. You talk to people about Atari, they'll tell you about Space Invaders. They'll tell you about the other, but they won't tell you about Bond because they didn't even know it came out. And with our very first official James Bond game for your home gaming systems, we leave 1983. We're going to skip over 1984. No movies, no games, but man, oh man, we are headed to 1985. (laughs) 
1985 would give us Roger Moore's last outing as Agent 007 and Duran Duran heating up the charts, taking their hit song of You To A Kill all the way to number one. James Bond was everywhere you looked in 1985, and our favorite 00 got not one, but two games released during the Bond mania. I promise you we'd talk again about text-based adventures, aka interactive fiction, and that promise has led us to our first game of 85. And it was created by a man who would leave a much, much bigger mark on the Bond universe in the years to come. So let's boot up some DOS and talk about Bond's second foray into text-based interactive fiction. So the first game we're going to talk about is James Bond 007 A View to a Kill. It was by Angelsoft and Mindscape Software, available on your MS-DOS, your Apple II, and your Macintosh. As previously stated, it is a text-based adventure or interactive fiction. So you actually read through a novel, type in commands, hoping to progress through the story. But what makes this one so very interesting is who wrote it. The man who would leave an indelible mark on the James Bond literary universe. The very first American author of the James Bond novels and the third continuation writer. It is Mr. Raymond Benson. I graduated from college with a theater degree. I worked at the uh, Alley Theater in Houston, Texas for a year, and then I moved to New York City. And this was in the late 70s, before computers. Well, computers in the home, that is. And Dungeons and Dragons had come out. And I had some friends in New York that played it. So I got involved and I thought it was fun and did a little of that. And in those early 80s, then the, the role-playing game, the James Bond role-playing game from Victory Games came out. And I started playing with that. And, I got, and you know, I was, I was a Bond fan. And during the, all those early years of the 80s, I was writing the James Bond Bedside Companion. I was researching it and writing it. It took me, you know, three years to do. But during that time, I got to know the guys behind the role-playing game, the Bond role-playing game. So I kind of got involved. Then in 1984, the Bedside Companion was published. And suddenly I had become sort of this, you know, James Bond expert, whatever. I had an agent, a literary agent. It wasn't long after the book was published. It was probably around just two or three weeks after the book was published. And my agent called and said, Raymond, there's this company outside of New York that are making computer games and they have a license for James Bond and they're looking for a writer. And I thought of you. And I went, oh, and he said, are you into games? And I went, well, I'm, I'm into these role-playing games. And he says, do you have a computer? And at that time, I didn't own my own computer. I was typing on a typewriter, electric, you know, selector typewriter. Uh, you know, and this was the time when PCs were just coming into the home. You know, you had the Apple IIc and things like that. And so I said, yeah, I'm, I'm real interested. And so he arranged a meeting for uh, the woman who was in charge, who would be the producer of the games to come to a meeting with me and my agent. She brought an Apple IIc. It was really the first time I ever got to like play with one. First, she booted up Zork from uh, Infocom. 
And she showed me how this was a text adventure, you know, it tells a story as you play, you know, you were in the dark, creepy room and you see a sword on the ground. What do you do? Type, pick up the sword, you know, that kind of stuff. And she goes, we want to do, well, it was not only uh, James Bond, but they also had an, uh, the license to do Stephen King's The Mist, which was a novella at the time. It was a long time before the movie or anything. So this was just a, a novella and they wanted to adapt that into a game. And uh, would I be interested in that? Was I a Stephen King fan? Yes, I am. So I said, yes, I'm very interested. And they, I think they let me borrow an Apple IIc and some of the Infocom games. And I got hooked. I loved those Infocom games. And then I got the contract. So I went out and bought an Apple IIc. I needed one. I had to have one. Basically, my, I guess the advance paid for that. So yeah, and I started buying Infocom games. I loved them. I, I was really into them. All of them. Every one of them. I think I, I had the whole collection. <laughs> but anyway, in January of 1985, I started working for this company. It was called AngelSoft. They were based in White Plains outside of New York. So three days a week, I would take the train from Grand Central to White Plains. And then I would either walk or take a bus. I think I took a bus from the train station around to where their office is. And I would work in their office all day for three days a week and then work at home the rest of the time. AngelSoft consisted of a very small company. The head of the company or the, you know, the creative director of the company was a guy named Mercer Meyer who had written children's books. And he had done their very first game that was going to come out. It was like a fantasy game. So I started first with the Stephen King work. So I worked on that, uh, and it was a very, very small team. There were two programmers, the producer, and me. So, you know, the programmers designed the engine, you know, how the whole text thing worked and all that. They were the technical side of it. And I basically wrote and I learned how to do the user code, you know, the if-else statements. So uh, I learned how to write in that format pretty quickly. And so I wrote the first script for Stephen King's The Mist. Then I moved on to A View to a Kill. And they got a license to do two James Bond games. And uh, one of them had to be A View to a Kill because that was going to be the current movie out that summer, summer of 85. We got a script, I remember, and read the script. And kind of like the way I did the movie novelizations many years later, I would take the script and kind of break it down into how would this play as a game and uh, started writing it same way. And we actually saw a rough screen. The producer and I went into New York and saw a, an exhibitor's screening of the rough cut. It must have been around May of 85. And the score, the John Berry score was not yet in it. However, they were using pieces of his other Bond scores in its place. And the main titles had not been integrated into the movie. However, we did get to hear the Duran Duran song. They played it over the speakers first. And then, you know, it started with the pre-credit sequence and then kind of cut to after the title sequence. So we finished that one. By the time summer was beginning, we'd finished that game. And the next title was Goldfinger. I worked on Goldfinger all the rest of the summer. The View to a Kill and Stephen King's The Mist came out in the fall of 85, and Goldfinger came out in the spring of 86. And we will get to 1986 in just a moment, but first, we need to hear from Mike from New Jersey, who played these text adventure games back in the day. 
on the old computer. So let's boot up that old machine and hear from our buddy Mike from New Jersey. I'm trying to remember where I even purchased the game. It probably at like one of the big toy store chains. I, I you know, Toys R Us had a section where they had some video games. They had, you know, the old uh, Atari cartridges and the fledgling computer games. There were a couple of computer stores that sort of in the back, undercover, behind the coat hangers. They had, uh, you know, the, the computer games there. And if you went further back, you found people writing the walkthroughs for uh, for some of the uh, the text adventure games. I do remember it came in a, it was sort of like a record album. It was like a folded cardboard folder. So it was a very attractive cover. The Beautiful Kill had a very attractive cover in that little cardboard fold that type of album. It was packaged nicely. You know, text adventures at that time, the better ones had awesome packaging. I always liked the concept of text adventures or uh, as Infocom, which was the company that really promulgated the better of them, called them interactive fiction. So IF was sort of the uh, the key word back then. If somebody promoted their product as interactive fiction, right, you knew it was it was going to be a little bit better than the quote text adventure games. And and the whole premise, of of course, was you're reading a, a novel. It was not supposed to be sort of a choose your own adventure, which was a simple branching story. This was something where you couldn't get from chapter one to chapter two to chapter 17 unless you did certain things. And it wasn't necessarily something in serial fashion. So you can go from chapter one to two to chapter 15, bounce back to chapter four, whatever, depending on what you did, the sequence that you did things in. And so that was sort of the structure of the better of the text adventure games. Once the Infocon games started to prove popular, there was just a spate of these text adventure games, these interactive fiction things that were out there. And most of them were pretty lousy. What I looked for were the games that were written by people that actually had experience putting three or four words together in a proper sentence. And sure enough, you had it with Raymond Benson's work that he did. Raymond's a writer. You could tell the the quality of the text even though they were sort of parsed out in little bundles of seven or eight sentences at a time, the quality of the text was far superior than 90% of the junk that was out there at the time. That's the good thing of the games back then. The bad thing is of the games back then is that the interpreter or the parser wasn't exactly a natural language parser. It got better as the years went on, but frequently all these games started with simple commands there was a verb and a noun and you'd put them together and hopefully you had the right verb and the right noun you know go north go south go east go go up go down pick up the book pick up the keys right and you know you had to in many of these games guess at the exact wording that the author was looking for as opposed to being several options and i suspect raymond put bunch of options as part of the description. So the interpreter that was used was a little bit more forgiving than most of the games that were out there. Now, the Infocom, they were the leaders at the time. Their parser was very sophisticated. And it was based, as I understand it, on algorithms that eventually became used in in some uh, artificial intelligence programs. And I don't know of the sophistication of the parser that Raymond's games used, but it wasn't as sophisticated as what you had in the, in the Infocom. So the good news was when you read the text that was on the screen, it was awesome. 
you know, you read any of Raymond's Bond novels, and I've always said of the continuation authors, Raymond stuff stands out there as being the best. I think a case could be had that shoot me down for saying this, you know, his his writing and his Bond novels uh, in many cases could even be seen as being better than the original uh, Fleming novels. It really shone through this type of quality. So wherever I got it, <laughs> they were these five and a half inch floppy disks that I put into an old IBM 88 machine. You know, you'd hear the clicks and the whirs, and it was actually pretty cool because the clicks and the whirs and the sounds that these old clunky machines made, you almost felt like you were going into some futuristic Q laboratory to actually start the thing. And we'll get back to hearing a little more from Mike when we get to 1986 to talk about the next text-based adventure. But between here and there, there was another game released in 1985. would bring a new game designer into the licensed world of 007 games, Domark Games. Domark had just started in 1983, so only two years before it nabbed the license to James Bond and video games. So that was a big get for them. And they would hold on to that license for eight years and six games. So we are going to talk about Domark for a little while. Domark was a small British company named after its founders and their original programmers, Dominic Wheatley and Mark Strachan. Their first outing in James Bond gaming was hugely ambitious. It was A View to a Kill, the computer game. It was available on the ZX Spectrum, the Amstrad CPC, the Commodore 64, the Oric, the Oric Atmos, and the MSX Systems. The game itself was comprised of three smaller games, and this is where the ambition comes in. There was a top-down driving chase through Paris where Bond is trying to capture Mayday as she floats down in a parachute. And I say top-down, but there's also a first-person view that's going on at the same time as the top-down view. Again, hugely ambitious. There's also a seek-and-find-style game to help Stacy escape the burning building in San Francisco. And finally... There's a side-scrolling adventure to stop Zoran's bombs in the mines. So it stayed very loyal to key moments of the film. But man, was there a lot of different style of gameplay. This is early in computer gaming. So it wasn't the best James Bond game you're ever going to see, but you've got to give them points for ambition. Also, this is the first James Bond video game that will feature speech albeit that very choppy computerized version, but they did use Roger Moore's voice sample. Give it a listen. My name's Bond. James Bond. And with that, let's talk with Matt from Darlington, who hosts at Bond Maps on Twitter for his experience with 1985's A View to a Kill, the computer game by Domark. I bought the A View to a Kill game from a company called W.H. Smiths in the UK. I bought it for the Spectrum. I paid £10.99 for this game back in 1985, which was, at the time was about $14. Probably today, something like $40. So the game is split into three mini-games. First of all, it's Paris. 
Bond has to drive a car through the streets. Mayday floats above you in a parachute, and then you need to follow Mayday, catch up with her before she uh, lands. The big troll with this part of the game is it takes so long for Mayday to parachute to the ground that the game has probably been stopped due to the excessive damage you've caused with Bond driving around in his taxi, crashing into other vehicles and getting caught by the police. That wasn't a particularly strong part of the game. Um, part two was set in City Hall in San Francisco, where Bond has to rescue Tracy and find his way out of the burning building. This is a sort of platform game where you've got to find keys that open doors and find the gun and so on. There's little puzzles to solve along the way. Not so satisfactory. And the final part of the game was set in the mine, where Bond needs to find Mayday so she can help him get access to the bomb. Again, you need to find various objects, dynamite to sort of blow up some rocks, and then so you can get into a certain other part of the mine. I remember finding it super difficult to get Bond to jump exactly how I wanted him to jump. And I always ended up falling down a huge mine shaft that I couldn't then get him out of. But the game overall, the controls were absolutely terrible. And I was super excited to buy it. But playing it, the controls are terrible. The graphics were even worse, even at that time. Whilst you've got three parts of the game that do follow the plot of the film, when the main bad guy in the film, Zorin, doesn't even appear in the game, that's not really a a strong movie tie-in, I didn't think. On the loading screen, you see a picture of Bond and Stacey. And of course, in those days, you know, you, you put your cassette into the cassette player and loaded the game off that. And you have to wait five minutes for the game to load up. So the picture of Bond and Stacey on the loading screen, this is a sort of black outline on a red background. It looked nothing like Roger Moore or Tanya Roberts. There was a gun barrel, though, you know, and that's pretty cool. So at the start of the game, the, the dots go across the screen and then the gun barrel thing comes in. But Bond looks like he's been really ill and lost a lot of weight. He looks so slim and so tall that Roger Moore being 57 or whatever it is at the time, it doesn't really look appropriate. However, there was speech, and this is at the time, to have some speech, audio speech in a, in, a, in a game on a very basic system on an 8-bit computer was pretty cutting edge. So at the end of the gun barrel, you heard the, my name is Bond, James Bond. My name's Bond, James Bond. But it sounded a bit like a Dalek from Doctor Who, really, rather than Roger Moore. So the game came on a tape cassette. There was three levels. And then when you completed the first level, you got a code. And then you loaded the second level in on your tape. Effectively, it's almost a new game. You enter the code from the first level. And that sort of gets you going in in the second level. And then the same with the final level. You completed level number two. Level three, you need to get enter a code to use that. And I must confess that I never completed even one of these three levels, let alone the full game, right? And I remember feeling pretty proud of myself because what you could actually do was reset your computer and fast forward the cassette tape to the appropriate point where the level two or level three started and loaded the level in you wanted directly. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool, really. I've managed to get around finishing level one. I can go and play level two and level three, which is pretty cool, especially if I paid so much money for this game at the time out of my, uh, my pocket money. However, whilst you could play all the levels, if you didn't have the code to enter to unlock the second and third level, whilst you could play the game, you were at a massive disadvantage and it made it much harder to complete that level, which is presumably the reason why I never did. I played the game on the ZX Spectrum, which I think in the US was known as the Timex Sinclair. I think looking back now and doing a little bit of research, the graphics on that conversion are far worse than you would see on the Commodore 64 or on the Amstrad versions of the game, presumably because of the technological barriers of of the spectrum at the time. It was the first Bond game I bought. I remember being super excited about buying it. You know, Roger Moore on the front cover. I remember it had a really sort of hard plastic case, a little bit more premium than, than other games available at the time. 
looking back, this was 10 weeks pocket money for me. So this was a big investment. And my God, the disappointment after about 10 minutes of playing the game, particularly when you played other games at the time, both in the arcades and on the home computers. Oh, very, very, very disappointing. And I think this is the reason why I didn't then go on to buy many other games for the Spectrum from that point onwards. I was looking at, soon after that, the sort of Mega Drive and other sort of games consoles came onto, into, into play. And uh, yeah, that was it for the Spectrum for me. Thanks again to Matt from Darlington, who hosts at Bond Maps on Twitter, and that will round out 1985's James Bond video games. But as hinted at earlier, we are going to move right into 1986. Just because Cinema Bond was taking a year off during 1986, that doesn't mean that our old friend Raymond Benson was resting on his laurels. Angelsoft still held the license to make another interactive fiction game based around 007, and now that Benson had done the obligatory of you to a kill to sync up with the film's launch, he was free to take on a more personal project, so he leapt at the chance to create James Bond 007 Goldfinger in the realm of interactive fiction. Once again, it was produced by Angelsoft and Mindscape. It was available on MS-DOS, Apple II, and Macintosh. And let's fire up those old computers once again and revisit our buddy Mike from New Jersey. Goldfinger, I remember more than Beautiful Kill. So here's my impressions of Goldfinger. And I, I never got all the way through. And it took me probably two months before I actually got past the first scene. So the Goldfinger game started out, you were in the Aston Martin. Uh, I think Tilly Masterson was next to you and you were driving somewhere in Switzerland and there were already people chasing you. And that's how it started. It's like, welcome to the game. Do you want to start a new game or go back to a saved game? You know, welcome. You're in the Aston Martin and you saw, and it, it took me a while to realize, you know, bad guys chasing it. I'm in the Aston Martin. I know it's full of cool stuff, but how do you access the cool stuff? You know, you needed to in the old games, look at the car, look at the armrest, open the armrest. And the description would be there's four buttons in the armrest. Look at the four buttons. And this is what you would have to type. And in between your typing and the descriptions, Raymond always snuck in, the lead car is getting closer. You can see the people in the lead car pulling out guns. It's like, holy crap. <laughs> and this is, this is a, a stupid text adventure game. And it's, it's giving you the chills down your spine. I mean, you felt like you were being chased on this thing. You know, you can really attribute that to the quality of the writing. I can't say enough about the work that Raymond did on the writing side. It was cool. It was crisp. And it took me, as I said, a long time to figure out buttons are in the armrest. And then there were four buttons. You push one button and I think it shot out the smoke screen and another button did the oil slick. And another button, I think was a dummy button. Maybe it just flipped the license plates around, you know, it did the things that the buttons did in the, uh, in, in the Aston Martin. You had like two shots at this, Jared, two shots. And, you know, because then the car would catch up, the guys would shoot you, or I think they captured you and automatically you're on the table with the laser beam shooting at you. It was pretty intense stuff. 
And it was also frustrating because, you know, again, the older algorithms, you sort of had to guess the key words to, to move the story along the way. And again, I never made it more than halfway through, but I did find online, whatever we called online back then, I did find online a walkthrough. These walkthroughs, you know, done by the gnomes and the computer stores behind the coat closets, three or four feet under the pile of dirt, you know, in the back of the room. It basically said, here's how to play these games, and it would walk you through exactly what to type. And that was the only way that I was able to sort of see the game through completion. I started to think that if you were a fan of the film or had read the novel, you probably had a leg up, assuming Raymond wasn't going to stray too far off of the story, because you knew the way things were going to transpire. And I remember reading somewhere at the time that there are parts of the game that reflected the movie pretty closely. And I have to tell you, I think knowing the movie made it harder <laughs> because you you sort of knew what to expect and you knew what Bond did in certain circumstances. Like if you're on the laser table, you know, you want to shout out Operation Grand Slam, just like Connery does, right? So you type in shout Operation Grand Slam and, you know, it doesn't happen. Nothing happens because that's not the way the game is structured. You sort of have to look at it through a parallel universe, new lens to get this thing through. So that was the Goldfinger experience. And I really do rank it up there with the best of those games from uh, Infocom. You know, that was the experience with the text adventures. And the fact that you had a stupid little text adventure game building the kind of tension that I felt with this thing, you know, that's... Where do you find that? You know, you can find it in like some arcade games and some platform games, uh, particularly ones with timers on them. But in a text adventure game where you read stuff and then you type stuff and then you read more stuff to have that sense of uh, that sense of anticipation and suspense, you know, it's, it's really commendable. Ever the classy gentleman, Raymond Benson had just a couple words left to say as we close out his final entry in the James Bond video game world. Uh, I just want to say that I'm grateful to the folks at AngelSoft for giving me that opportunity. They were good people to work for. You know, the programmers and the producer, her name was Anne. She was a really nice person, and I learned a lot. It kind of set me on a different career path that was very helpful. And now it is time for us to move into 1987. Nineteen eighty-seven brought us a new bond in the form of Timothy Dalton, but this would be the second outing for Domark. And the second time that they would sync up a game release in time for a film release. It is the Living Daylights. It was available on the Amiga, the Amstrad CPC, Atari Computers, the BBC Micro, the Commodore 64, MSX, ZX Spectrum, and there was even an arcade version. This is a side-scrolling platform shooter. And to tell us a little bit more about it, let's talk to our friend, the Wizard of Ice. So Christmas Day, we've got like Living Daylights. So as a kid of 12, it's, it's not bad. Not bad at all. So the box for that is bang on. You can't fault it, to be fair. I think the tape ones, I don't know if it was a cassette size, but it was a little bit bigger, but 
was quite small. With the Amstrad disc, it was like the disc, as I say, three by two, and then it had some protective thing. So you ended up with a square of about 10 inches, as the case. I'd say it's like a big CD case. So it's like a CD case on steroids. And all it was was just the poster, you know, the black poster, Living Daylights, which is, in my opinion, the best poster. And that was it. Got a little Amstrad logo in the corner, don't want logo, but nothing really impinged on the poster. So you, you couldn't argue that presentation-wise. So you load it up reasonably quickly because I was posh enough to have the disc. Not sitting around with your cassettes for half an hour. <laughs> yeah, there's no gun barrel, which... All right. Jude for Kill did have a gun barrel, so I don't know why you wouldn't do that. But like, deadlines and, I guess, the animation for that. I don't remember it being as big deal at the time. No, no Bond theme as well. That's another... No Bond theme and no sort of rendition of uh, Aha. Just a generic sort of action-y, not terrible, sort of homemade track they've come up with. It's quite pumping. I remember you get it in the... There's a bit in between levels where you have five seconds to choose a gadget from Q, and the music sort of spills the tension quite well. I don't remember it playing, actually, during the levels, to be fair. Um, anyway, so the game itself, you've got a sort of side-scrolling sort of shooter, side-scrolling third-person with Bond, which sort of runs across the screen, left to right. And then you've got two types of villain. You've got something like in the background, which is like a sort of coconut-shy, which pop up like sort of targets like you'd expect in a shooting range they're sort of stuck at the back and they can't do anything except pop up and shoot and you kill them um, and then you've got like an actual adversary figure a sprite which is like the same as Bond and they never run at you you can run but they never run they just stand and shoot I mean, gun might at the end but he's the only one you basically run across the screen you take out the guys who are shooting from the shooting range and you eventually get to the guy at the end who's sort of head to head with Bond and you take him out so I had a joystick a lot of games I prefer the keyboard at the time. I imagine it'd be pretty hellish to play on a keyboard. You've got Bond running across, which I don't know how you did that. I come to think of it now with the joystick. You've got Bond running across, and then you've got a cursor, which you aim at the guys to shoot. That's bizarre. I'm trying to think now. As I'm saying this, it seems more familiar, and it might have been the way. You have Bond running, then you have to bury the cursor off the screen, and then that allows Bond to run by movement of the joystick. And if you want, you guess you pull down, the cursor will go off, then left and right would now run Bond across the screen. Then you want to shoot again, you push you up and the cursor would appear, bomb would stop, and then you would shoot. I think there must have been an option to press the cursors with your finger so you could keep running and, and you could still be aiming with the joystick. It sounds horrifically clunky, I come to think of it now. Because on the start, it's not too bad, you can stop and just there's not that many people, but later on, you're getting shot at by all sorts and you really don't want to stop and you don't want to be standing still, you need to be running. I think jumping was maybe there's two triggers. So maybe the one was a shoot and then one was jump. And if you did that diagonally, that would make him jump. I remember it being very fiddly now, thinking about it. Jumping over the craters was a bummer, actually. Yeah, if you didn't clear it, you took a fair hit of life just for tripping over. Clunky controls, that is definitely something that I think, a fault perhaps a bit harsh, but something that made this game pretty tricky. So the first level is the Gibraltar sequence, and you've got a paint gun, and you've got the guys popping up, or the SAS guys, you take them out of the paint gun, you're not supposed to kill them. And then at the end, you get the KGB guy, who you are supposed to kill. But there's no instructions that told me you need to change your gun or anything like that. And I'd stand there shooting at him all day with this paint gun. And I thought, oh, maybe I need to shoot him in the head, fiddly with this joystick. You sort of had to go up and across it, and it wasn't intuitive like your joypads now. So I'd get on his head, and I'd be hammering him just trying to shoot his head, and he wouldn't die. Honestly, I'm not even joking. I must have been on this game a week, just on this level. And this is one of my main Christmas friends, so I'm not just going to toss it away in anger. Um, so I'm there, I'm like... Maybe I have to kill the SS. I mean, I have to shoot every single SAS guy. So I'd go through the level, shoot every single SAS guy. Now, yeah, honestly, a week, just doing my head in, I was ready to put the joystick through the screen. And then one day, we just ran some random thrashing around in fury, I guess. Curse went off the screen, and it must, there's some manipulation when the curse, you take the cursor down, change weapon, and, and fire, and 
do something, it gave you a chance. I've never this explained to me, but by pure chance, with these movements, one day I suddenly saw a Wolf PBK pop up in where it says, what weapon are you holding? And I suddenly just, <laughs> this sort of rush of adrenaline. <laughs> I think the first time, actually, I just saw it pop up Wolf PBK and then went back to paint. I didn't know what I'd done. And I was just, but now I knew there was a Wolf PBK somewhere. You could do something where it gave you a Wolf PBK. So then I spent probably a few more hours fiddling, trying to recreate these things. And eventually I had the Wolf PBK selected. And that's this eureka moment of revelation where I could actually kill people. <laughs> so when you got that, the whole game opened up. Straight away, bang, KGB guy dead. See you later. That's level one done after yeah, at least a week. It, could, it might be longer. I might be underselling that. I'm trying to make myself sound I'm not such a idiot. And now that our friend the Wizard of Ice has figured out how to progress in the game, let's find out how the rest went for him. So the second level was the theatre. This one had Koskov with you, tagging along. He just sort of runs along by the side of you. He manages to avoid getting shot. I don't think he took damage. I think it was just you who took damage, and he just happily tagged along while you're getting shot. You could get the night vision goggles. After each level, there's a cutscene of five seconds where you can pick a gadget from Q. Later on, it was important which one you pick, but this one didn't matter. You could get night vision goggles, which just turn everything green, but didn't make a great difference in terms of gameplay, I don't think. I think you could complete it either way. I don't think it was a fundamentally up to the night goggles to shoot anyone. The next one would have been the safe house. You have Necroft throwing milk bottles at you, which took a fair chunk of life out of you. He throws them pretty fast, so you can't shoot him. You've got to just duck, I think. And I think he has an infinite supply as well. There's, at the fairground later, he has a, the balloons and they run out. But I think this, he has an infinite supply, so you've got to duck, pop up. Bear in mind, that with, like I said, with the joystick, you've got a duck bond, then go into cursor mode, get the cursor onto him, shoot him before the next milk bottle hits you in the face and takes a massive chunk of life out. So you then you only get like a couple of bullets away before the next milk bottle's on the way. You have to take the joystick into bomb control to duck. So it was quite fiddly. Yeah, fairground next, which was, as I say, you got Nikros again with balloons this time. And there's a thing where you had the Q gadget with the crossbow. I think you had to select that to shoot the balloons. I think PPK bullets for some reason just you couldn't take the balloons out without some special coating on the skin of the balloon was impervious. Kevlar balloons or something. Um, <laughs> a crossbow could take them out. So you had to have the crossbow for that. And he just let these balloons fire at you, which, again, would take take big chunks of life off if they hit you. I don't know if they're supposed to have something in them. Um, <laughs> in the film, they're just standard balloons. And then you had Tangier, which would, was... You had to have the dart gun for this, because you're not supposed to kill a policeman. I think the only baddies on this are the police, actually, because obviously Nikros and Koskov are in this scene, and Whittaker. And so it's just the police chasing you. Well, not chasing you. You just Bond runs across the screen, the police are waiting at the end. You just run into front of them. But you had to have the dart gun. I think if you shot him with a PPK, then... He lost a life or whatever, and it said, you know, don't kill him. So you have to take them out of the dark gun, which, again, that's not explained to you either. So you start on this. First time you get to that level, you, you start shooting them, and you can't understand why they're dying. And that's why you keep losing life, because they're dying. Um, so eventually you change to the dark gun, and, and that gets you through. And so the next one would have been the airbase, and that's pretty tough. This one is a helicopter that just goes along the top, and that just keeps coming across intermittently, drops bombs on you. The guys at the shooting range who just have little pot shots for the rest of the game, I think they've got mortars now as well. So basically everyone is just bombing the shit out of you. I tried taking them out and it just it's too time consuming this fiddling with the cursor. So in the end for that, I remember vividly that level especially, you'll just run and just run for it. And the way I figured it, maybe there's better ways, was just to run like buggery. You'd get to the end of the level and you'd have a guy to kill. I don't know who that is. It's some guy in uniform, so it could be Koskov or it could be... Colonel Theodore, possibly, never mentioned, but you kill him, so I guess it's not Koskov, if you want to be true to the film. Um, so that level was possibly the, the hardest. As well, I think there's no saving in those days. 
kids. Oh yeah, you just die now. Say, so I just carry up. No, no, you start again in the eighties. That's how we learn. So you lose all your lives. That's it. You're back to level one. So it was getting through it as fast as you could to get to that airbase level with sufficient life in the tank to sort of try and get you through to the last level. Many times I've, I've slogged through the, the first whatever five levels and got to that airbase possibly even without losing a life. And then I've just seen it all just disappear. <laughs> As the helicopter's just bombed me to buggery. And then you're back to start again. Yeah, so no, no, no saving stuff. You don't, you don't need born you people these days. If you scrape through the airbase level, you'd be down to, at best, one and a half lives, maybe two if you're lucky. And then the last level's Whitaker. And I think, fortunately, that's not as difficult as the airbase, because it's just Whitaker. I think I don't remember even there being pop-up guys at this point. And it's just Whitaker. Oh, no, he think had body arm, actually. So if you had the PPK, forget it. Yeah, yeah, in the queue thing, you had to get the bazooka. And that was anything that would kill him. Yeah, so all that stuff was just about getting through the airbase and, sa- and not saving. Imagine the first time you get to the QC, you know, it's got the four gadgets. I can't remember what, like, different types of gun. But you don't pick the bazooka. And at that point, you've had it. And you've got through, and you think, right, this is my shot of Whitaker, And you can't kill him, and that's it. And you and back to the start, you go and start again. Perfect storm, where you got through the airbase level with sufficient life intact to have a crack at Whitaker. That would take you another half dozen goes of the game to get to that point. It's pretty devastating to not be able to kill Whitaker and know you're back at the start. I mean, I remember the adrenaline, actually. Once you've got, you've got through the airbase and you've got Whitaker and you've got maybe a life, and that's and you know this, you've got one shot of this. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's quite pathetic, but I remember the sort of the, the sweaty palms and the, right, this is it, this is Whitaker. If I don't get him, I'm back to the start and it I may be in like another week before I get through the airbase and I get another crack. So, what, in, in terms of throwing it's artificially thrilling in the sense that they made it so hard that when you got that crack at the final boss you did simulate the uh, adrenaline of Bond <laughs> even the heights of Goldeneye I don't remember that, that heart pumping I've got half a life going into this level against Whitaker. if he gets me twice I'm dead you've got to be bang on I gotta tell you I could do a whole series listening to the Wizard of Ice talk about his gameplay <laughs> But that is 1987's The Living Daylights, clearly a step up from their first shot of View to a Kill. But a hallmark of these Domark games is going to be their difficulty level for the most part. But with that, let's go ahead and move on to 1988. With no Bond film being released in 88, Domark had more creative freedom to explore other 007 titles for its next outing. So they wisely chose to take a ready-made gaming engine and slap a new coat of paint on it in the form of one of the more popular Roger Moore films. 1988 would give us Domark's Live and Let Die. As previously stated, they basically just took a boat racing engine and added a couple of tweaks to make it more James Bondish and to line it up with the boating scenes from Live and Let Die. It was available on the Amiga, the Atari ST, the Commodore 64, the ZX Spectrum, and once again, let's go back to the Wizard of Ice and see how it went for him when he played it as a kid. But yeah, Live and Let Die, so they're the best standalone game, although it's repetitive. It's one game mechanic, you're driving your boat, We've got a rear view driving towards the screen and like on a little river or whatever and that's flowing past you and then there's guys shooting at you and all sorts there's an iceberg level and a desert level so one's got icebergs one's got pyramids on this background and then there's one actual bayou level pull out quite a few of the stops again stunt wise you can jump off things and then there's this i think there's mines and rocks and stuff 
and there's like a bit of bayou at the side and if you can, you can steer up that into the sort of slide at the side and then you come back down into the water it gets harder things come at you faster and stuff but you just you just basically do the same thing and then eventually you get to a bit on the horizon it says mr big's factory the one with the crocodiles presumably where you'd make the boat from in the first place but never worry about the continuity that's not san monique anyway but anyway mr big's factory and then you just have to jump off a thing so you're in the air because for some reason that makes them missiles more potent during the air when you fire them but you have to fire them in the air i think the torpedoes to be fair so if you're firing in the water they're not they're just going to go in the water so you have to be in the air to fire them maybe I'm overthinking this, I guess. Then you blow up Mr. Big's production facility or whatever this is supposed to be. And that's the end. Doesn't sound particularly good, that, compared to what my license would kill with you. Oh, yeah, the box. So we deviate from the poster here. I don't know why. Dom and Mark cutting corners with it. I don't know. Using the poster costs a bit more. But quite a nice sort of hand-drawn picture of Rog in a boat with guys behind him shooting. There's probably explosions and stuff. Quite a nice picture, actually. Quite a nice piece of art. And then bizarrely on the back, you've got, a, not cartoon, but not... Like the Rodge is a sort of photorealistic hand drawing, you know, like the old classic posters, like you get a view to a kill or octopusy poster. But on the back, you've got a sort of, it's not a cartoon rendition of JW, but it's not a real rendition either. It's sort of JW smoked a joint or whatever and uh, maybe had a few bourbons. So he's slightly out of it. And he's just sort of stood there and there's some big speech bubble about him, uh, Mr. Bond on his bio or something. I don't know why they've came up with that because he doesn't feature in the game at all. I know Living It Down is quite a popular film in England in terms of sort of familiarity of the public. I guess it's one they would recognise. They'd all know about the speedboat and possibly the voodoo aspect. If you say Joe Public, what, you know, Living Let Die, that's the one with the speedboats and the voodoo and Paul McCartney. I'm not sure that many of the public would know about JW. They probably would if you, like, once they saw him, they thought, oh yeah, it's that you know, racist American sheriff. I'm not sure he's that big a figure that they have brand recognition in, in the general public. I guess if you're making a game... Thought the villain said, I'm going to get Mr. Bond. But it's actually JW expressing exasperation at Mr. Bond cutting up his bayou again. But in terms of actual game, then this is the best actual game in terms of game mechanics and stuff. Uh, yeah, so all along, you've got this sort of fuel gauge going down. So you can go faster and slower and it reduces your fuel consumption. But I think there's airdrop barrels of fuel. I suppose it's, it's supposed to be Q or what Felix never mentioned. You need, and if you're going fast and the barrel drops, you miss it. You don't get that fuel. So you've got to wait for the next one. And then at some point, there's little channels for fork in the road sort of thing and one channel will lead you down the right way and then there's a couple where it's just a rock and you go down that one and you get stuck down a rock and then you're like well what am I doing now and there's no reverse on the boat if someone goes down the, the one with the rock there's going to be some sort of mechanism to get them out of it so you pick the wrong path and if you go full pelt at it I think you can blow up on the rock and it might set you back far enough that you're in the, you can pick the fork again but if you're low on fuel you throttle back a bit and you go too slow that you crash into the rock and it doesn't kill you then you, that's it you're stuck in the rock and there's no way you can kill yourself. There's no way out. You can shoot the rock, it doesn't make the rocks won't blow up. So you're just stuck with this rock, and after sort of 10 minutes thinking, what can I do? You come to the conclusion, there is nothing I can do, and you hard reboot, sorry. Which, for me, is not too bad, being rich and posh with my disk drive in the 80s. If you're on the Commodore and the Spectrum with a tape deck, then that's another half an hour before you can carry on again. And even then, you're back at the start of the level again, which you say you slogged all the way to the end. So similar to that, you've got this ticking time bomb with the fuel, and if you miss probably two you start getting in deep trouble with the fuel, it gets into the red, and then you know the next one, you've got to get that. And if you miss that one, and you ground to a halt, and then you stop. And again, what are you going to do? You're stuck about out of fuel, you stopped. There's no saves of five minutes ago like the other day. Just go back, oh, go back to the last save. Yeah, easy. It's not like that. You're back to the start. So you've slogged on. It's just like one continuous level. So to get through it, it would take you probably half an hour. Um, so if you're right near the end and you run out of fuel, bad luck. Start again. That's the way it was in the 80s. We had a tough life. Truer words were never spoken there, wizard. Man, gaming was hard back in the 80s. And speaking of which, we are rounding the corner of finishing up disc one. The only year we have left is 1989. 
1989 offered two new James Bond games. Or maybe kind of three. Or kind of four. You know what? We'll get to it. Let's start with the first one. It was 1989 and Timothy Dalton was back in action. And so was Domark as they were poised for another synchronous release with their game License to Kill. It was available on DOS, the Amiga, Amstrad, CPC, Atari ST, BBC Micro, Commodore 64, MSX, and the old ZX Spectrum. This time around, they went for a top-down action game. And you can tell that Domark might have been pressed for time a little harder than usual on this one, because roughly 50% of the game focuses on the pre-title sequence of License to Kill, as if maybe the filmmakers didn't get Domark the completed film in time for them to make a game, or at least a completed script in time for them to make a game. Fans of the Bond series know that License to Kill did have some production issues, not being able to film in England, you could see where that could maybe snowball in getting the game company behind. But like I said, about half the game focuses on the pre-title sequence. It's interesting to kind of stop and think that this is indeed 1989. This is the height of the Nintendo Entertainment System. Nintendo basically hit the scene big time in about 87, 88. By 89, Nintendo is the biggest home video game console in America, possibly the world. But yet, there's still no James Bond game available on the Nintendo. Up to now, they've all been computer releases of one type or another, with the exception of the Atari game that we talked about back in 1983. Right now, the closest thing to a James Bond game on the Nintendo is a fun little number called Spy Hunter. If you remember Spy Hunter, that was a top-down vehicle game that played very much in the vein of the James Bond series. But nope, still no James Bond games on the Nintendo Entertainment System. And to tell us a little bit more about 1989's License to Kill, let's hear from Phil from Manchester. So I would have got it when I was probably eight or nine. Well, the first Bond game I remember getting, probably the first computer game I remember actively trying to hunt down. I had the Spectrum 48K, the bare bones Spectrum. Not even the um, ZX Plus, it was... The old plastic keyboard one, that bit of a knockoff version of it. It was on cassette. So he came, I remember when we got it in sort of the mid-80s, some bloke came around to set us a big plastic keyboard, little cassette player at the side, a joystick that was worse than useless. You know, rather than going to your, you know, your local computer shop or hardware place, it was, you had to know someone. And the whole idea was it's maybe educational, but... Spectrum wasn't really an educational machine. It was boot up and you're straight into basic. You know, it was very basic as it was. But I remember going to the shop at the top of the road that I lived. It used to have a carousel with all the cassettes on. And I remember it being probably about 10, 15 pounds. You know, pretty expensive. And it didn't even come with like the, um, it wasn't even just a normal cassette case. It was kind of like the slightly larger one, slightly smaller than a CD. So it's probably enough room for a booklet in there kind of thing. And just remember playing it, loading it up, and the music was as you would expect from a system of its age. Try and play the Bond theme tune. And then you're straight into the game, pretty much. And the whole first 
well, I'd say three levels out of five on it was the pre-title sequence in the movie. You're in a heli- you're in the helicopter about to land. You were then on the ground, you know, the whole bit running around just killing the baddies. And then the level after that was catching Sanchez in his plane from the helicopter. I mean, I struggled to get up to the third level more often than not being a kid. And, you know, back then, games, you weren't used to, you know, the strategy of it, of a bit of a shoot 'em up So you kind of just got either going really too cautious and he's getting yourself pinned down, or you just were completely off because you're using the arrow keys on the keyboard to try and direct <laughs> yourself. So you, you couldn't shoot anything, really. Just one of the games that always stuck me. It was the first Bond game I had, and I swear it just I was massively getting into Bond. I couldn't go see License to Kill at the cinema. I was too young, so I had to wait for it to come out on video. And hopefully, I knew someone who could go to the video shop and get it for me. The other thing I had was the book that came with the cassette. You used to have so you had like the story you'd go through, very basic story, and a picture book with a cassette you could listen to as you went through it. So from having that and you know seeing the trailer for it on TV at some time. You kind of go, I know what this bit kind of is. And it was only when I went back to it after watching the movie, sort of in the, the early 90s, you know, the computer was on its way out at the time. Joe, you know before we get rid of it, I'm going to crank it back up and have a go. And it was then it kind of all like clicked and made sense, going, oh, right, I, know, I get this bit now. I understood the why you were doing things rather than just having the thing of your bond go kill people. Phil from Manchester teaches us all a good lesson and that it's always a good idea to know why you're shooting people. (laughs) With that, we're going to move into the very final James Bond video game release of the 1980s. Also coming out in 1989, just in time for the holiday season, we have the James Bond 007 Action Pack. And it isn't exactly a new game, but it kind of is. Domark and the ZX partnered for a holiday release for a special gaming bundle. So this was the ZX Spectrum Plus 2. And so you got the entire system, the ZX Spectrum Plus 2, and three games, all quote-unquote James Bond games. The first one was called Mission Zero, which was just a re-release of The Living Daylight, which had come out in 1987. Also packaged with this ZX Spectrum Plus 2, was a game called Q's Armory, which was a simple light gun shooting range type of game. Very simple. And thirdly, there was Lord Bromley's Estate, another light gun game. Very simple where you shoot clay pigeons and they sort of loosely tied it to the James Bond mythos. Now, what's particularly interesting, though, is in this bundle pack, first of all, the packaging is insanely awesome. Like, I couldn't believe it when I saw the packaging. I mean, it is ZX Spectrum Plus 2. It's got the most beautiful James Bond art on it. Very Living Daylights movie poster stuff going on there. Very, very, very cool. Another cool thing about it is that Desmond Llewellyn himself provides some of the voice work for these additional games. In fact, it's kind of funny because the Lord Bromley's Estate game was originally supposed to be the Lord Broccoli's Estate game, but it was changed for some unknown reasons. But Desmond Llewellyn still says Lord Broccoli on the audio. There's a couple of other neat little nuggets that come in the action pack, one of which is that you do get a bit more additional backstory for Brad Whitaker from License to Kill. He's a member of an evil organization known as Spider, so hmm, do with that what you will. Really wish I owned one of these. They're so cool looking. But with that, let's listen to the commercial that was released for that, and after the commercial, we'll roll into some experience with the system itself from Max Byrne from the Mandatory Marvel and DC podcast on the Comics in Motion Network. 
tension bond. This is the Sinclair ZX Spectrum Plus 2. It's a fully operational computer with 128K memory, but it comes with three James Bond games and a light gun that fires armor-piercing shells. Now that's your assignment. No, no, don't sit in that chair. Sorry, Bond. Haven't perfected that yet. The Sinclair ZX Spectrum Plus 2. So, casting my mind back to 1989, talking about the 007 action pack for the Spectrum, or the Spectrum Plus 2, as it was known in those days. This came out in 89 in England, basically just sort of trailed on TV. There was TV spots for it, and it was plugged for the Christmas market. So, it was on a lot of kids' Christmas list that year. My memory of 31 years ago is somewhat hazy, but I don't remember getting it for Christmas. I think I got it after Christmas. Maybe it would come down in price. We have January sales in this country. After Christmas, people spend the sort of gift money and what have you. So I think I got it probably early 1990, if memory serves me correctly. But when I got it at the time, it was a dream come true. I think we got it from a, there was a local sort of computer game shop near where I lived in the town where I lived. It wasn't bought on mail order or anything like that. And obviously this massively predates anything online. So I don't know how much it costs. I know when it initially came out, I think it was retailing for about £159 all in for the box set. But I would imagine when I got it, it'd probably come down by a few quid, but I couldn't tell you. I'd have to ask my parents to dig into their memory banks for that. What I remember specifically was the absolute brilliant packaging that it came in. It was such a badass looking box set. You had the sort of poster art from the Living Daylights film, a great image of Dalton in the gun barrel looking suave as only he could in the tuxedo. And you had the various sort of bits and bobs from the film. And then in the other corner of the box was two lads playing with the actual computer itself with the light gun that came with it. So it looked pretty great as a set. And then when you opened it, it was a brilliant treasure trove of all these different things. It came with like a brown dossier envelope, like top secret envelopes. You were, as a child, it was like being your own version of a spy. You had um, a replica of James Bond's passport in there, which was a pretty great thing to have. You had like a typed out memo from M, which was very cool. And the coolest thing of all was there was this audio cassette that came with it and they'd actually recruited Desmond Llewellyn to do the voice work for it in character as Q, basically just sort of priming you how each game worked and what was expected of you. It wasn't anything dramatic, but as a nine, 10 year old at that point, actually hearing Q addressing you as 007 was, it was a dream come true to be perfectly honest. So within there, you got three games, two were sort of fairly lightweight. And then the third one was where the sort of meat on the bone was. You had the first one was called Lord Bromley's Estate, which was basically just a clay pigeon shooting game, sort of tarted up as being bond on the firing range. And then you had a second one called Q's Armory, which, again, was just, a, again, a firing simulator. You were supposed to be like on the firing range, a bit like you would have seen Bond doing in Skyfall or something like that. So that was pretty cool. And then the third one was Mission Zero, which all that was, in essence, was the Living Daylights game that had already been released a year or two previous when the Living Daylights came out. And they just rebranded it as Mission Zero. But at that time, I'd never played the Living Daylights game anyway, so I was pretty stoked to be doing that. And the great thing about all three games was you actually used a physical gun to do the shooting. It wasn't like just using a joystick or the keyboard to line up like a crosshair. You actually had a physical gun called the Spectrum Light Gun, I think it was called. And it was a pretty futuristic looking ray gun and you plugged it in to the side of the computer and away you go. I don't remember it being the most uh, responsive of guns. I think to remember many times having to literally have it like a couple of inches from the TV screen to actually register a shot. 
I seem to remember getting rather annoyed with that as a kid, but hey-ho, I mean, just to have something like that back in the late 80s was pretty cool. The Living Daylights game itself, not the most in-depth of games, It's especially by today's standards, where you can spend hours upon hours upon hours playing a game. I think if you were to play the game from top to bottom now, you could complete it in about five minutes. In fact, if you go on YouTube now, there's some guy who's posted like a walkthrough of the entire game. Normally, these are hours worth of material to sit through, but it's literally five minutes to go through all eight levels, some of which are so short. But they did quite a good job, actually, of representing the sort of narrative of the film. It was chronologically in order with the film in the different locations, starting with Gibraltar and then going to Bratislava, Vienna, Tangiers. There was one level set, the Blade and Safe House as well. So all the key locations, well, most of the key locations from the film were there. So, you know, you could get immersed into that, I suppose. There was not much sound in the game. It was kind of just a little of you firing your shots from your wall, the PPK. Although when you got to the end of each level, sort of to mark the end of each level, you did get a nice few bars of the Bond theme. But when I say a few bars, I really do mean a few bars. It was just like, da-da-da-da. And then gone. That was it. Um, but it, still, it was pretty cool. The ending was a bit of anticlimax. I remember you'd sort of gone through these eight levels and you'd sort of defeated Necros and you'd done your earlier mission escorting Koskoff to safety and all the rest of it. And when you get to the end and you face off with Whitaker at his, his house there, it was literally like a 30-second job to kill him. And then rather than like a, what you get now, you get like this epic cutscene and you'd probably get a scene of you sort of living happily ever after with Kara or something like that. All you literally got was um, a graphic saying, congratulations, you've killed Whitaker. the Prime Minister thanks you. And it was on the screen for about 30 seconds and then it dropped out and that was it. That was it. And then you were literally back to the start where the, you had the option to replay the game again. Overall, by today's standards, obviously, it's not the greatest game in the world and and never could be from a system like the Spectrum back then. But at the time, with all the free stuff you got with it and the the package and just the fact that you were able to fire an actual gun as well, as a a 9, 10-year-old Bond fan of the 80s back then, it was a heavenly thing to have. And I'm so grateful I had it, you know. I I wish I still had it because I think those box sets in good condition can go for quite some good money now. So I wish I'd kept hold of it. But I suppose when you're a kid, you move on to the bigger and better game system. So it was long gone, I'm afraid. But overall, I would say it was a well put together package. And I think any English fan of Bond back then would have been chomping at the bit to play it. I know I certainly was. And with that discussion of the truly awesome James Bond game pack with the ZX Spectrum X2 from 1989, that will bring us to the end of disc one of the Digital 007 a look back at James Bond in video games. I'd like to thank the following people for making this happen. I'd like to thank Joe Slepsky. You may know him as the voice of the Gamefly commercials. He does the intros. And then, of course, our guests. Phil, the no-swear gamer from YouTube. Raymond Benson. Mike from New Jersey. Matt from Darlington, who runs the at Bond Maps account on Twitter. The Wizard of Ice. Phil from Manchester. Max Byrne from the Mandatory Marvel and DC Podcast on the Comics in Motion Network. Marty from Newcastle, who gave me a wonderful interview about the 1989 James Bond action pack, and it just got lost in the ether. I'm really sorry Marty didn't get on this episode. I loved his interview so much, but we just couldn't get back together in time. Sorry, Marty, but I want to give you a shout-out. And finally, folks, I must thank musical genius Joe November. He put together a completely original track for this podcast series. 
So what's going to happen here is I'm about to hand it over to our network founder, Van Allen Plexigo, to thank all of our Patreon supporters who make this possible. And after that, I'm going to play Joe's original track in its entirety for the outro music. I want you guys to really enjoy that. Musical Genius Joe November can be found on SoundCloud. Just look up Joe November and you can find all of his amazing tracks on his SoundCloud page. But this James Bond track so far is exclusive only to our podcast. So we're going to listen to the Patreon list. And then after that, please stick around because I want you to hear Joe's entire track. Thanks for being here. And we will catch you next episode where we do disc two, which will take us from 1990 to 1999. And I think there's a little game in there that might just be kind of popular in the video game community. I'm not sure, but we'll talk about it when we get there. Thanks for listening. Catch you around. We have to thank Matthew Flowers, Carl Von Drunker, Samuel Salvatore, and Christopher Burleson, as well as Phil Amthor, Ben Spooner, Bart Lindsay, Bradley Blackman, William Glenn Matthews, Gary Grant, Brian Gray, Willie Carden, Tom Anderson, Susan Trawick, Logan Chilton, Stephen Thompson, Chris Usher, Steve Trawick, and Richard Stevens. And then, of course, we got William Morgan, Johnny Caldwell, Emmanuel Seaman, WDE Richie, Winston Body, Clinton Stewart, and Christopher Stewart. Hey, guys. Mickey B, Phil Davis, Joshua Corbett, John Otsuki, Preston Settle, Daniel Odom, A.U. Falling Up Alchemist, Kevin Smith, Clarence Alford, Will Summerford, David Hegler, Theodore Gary, Reynolds Wolf, Joel Beckham, Valiant Hermes, Jacob and Robin Fleming, Clay Henson, Ann Kangian, Catherine England, George Gaston, John McCune, David Evers, Timothy, Steve Harlan, Dan Thompson, Wes Atkinson, and Rich Reimer. Then we have Sarah Hines, Darius Benton, a couple of new folks, welcome aboard. Rob Morgan, Blake Heron, Hugh Anderson, Stephen Houston, Cato the Barner, Danny Flack, Papa Todd, Russell Milling, Kevin Canoy, Don Ziederman, Ross, Lane Middleton, Shannon Butson, Randall Walker, Shane Bailey, Chris Thrash, Tony Perry, Alex Wynn, Josh Teal, David Simpson, Earl Ricks, Mike Finley, and C.T. Wayne. And finally, good old Jeremy Minton, Wardam Wade, Spanky, J.W. Rice, Jason Albrick, Mitch Vigicana, Mick Vigicana, not Mitch, Russell Souther, I've said these names a million times and I still mess them up, <laughs> Paul Bankson, Joseph Iliff, Justin Bean, Kevin Mahan, Stephen Wyatt. See, if you fast forward through this, you miss all the fun. Trevor Johnson, Auburn Elvis, Robert Drain, Brandon Smith, Royce Alvarez, Thomas Brinson, David Smiley, Matthew Wagstaff, Donnie Reynolds, Wade Carson, Ivor Evans, John Zavachin, Michael Morton, Lawrence Kane, Darren Pyle. I'm sure nobody fast forwards through it. You want to hear all my wacky mispronunciations. Chris Camo, Ben Amos, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Patrick Williams, Stephen Schuster, James Taylor, John Stubbs, Kenneth Brent Rains, Nicholas Craig, Joseph A. Miller, Mark Squire, Chris Brant Rumble, our one-time and anonymous donors. And we thank you all. We really appreciate you. We couldn't do it literally without you. Visit www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net to become a member and join the fun. And now, ladies and gentlemen, in its entirety, Joe November's track, Smirsh, LOL. <laughs>